Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. This is Jack Carr, hanging out with my buddy Dave Temple on The Thriller Zone. The following is a Thriller Zone replay, recorded at BoucherCon 23 in San Diego. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's 149th episode of The Thriller Zone, we present six superstar authors in this bonus episode. I recently attended BoucherCon 23, where David Brown of Atria Mystery Bus invited me to host their Saturday brunch and chat with a small stable of their clients. Now, what follows is a brief synopsis of those authors and their latest work. Each conversation is shorter than 15 minutes, but it gives you a great insight to their latest and or up-and-coming releases. Those authors begin with my good friend Chris Haughty, author of The Devil You Know. That's followed by relative newcomer and potential sensation I.S. Barry. Next is the always engaging Armando Carrera. That's followed by the multiple New York Times bestselling author Catherine McKenzie. Then you'll meet debut author Katie Hayes, and we'll wrap with my friend and yours, the mega-hit multimedia wonder, Jack Carr. Short but sweet, I hope you'll enjoy this one hour of engaging conversations with six authors who are sure to take this world by storm, if they have it already. Hint, hint. Special thanks to my new friend in books, David Brown at Atria Mystery Bus, one of the hardest working guys in the business, and a super special thanks to my wife, Tammy, who makes my life a better place. By the way, who knew she was such a good videographer? Thanks, babe. Chirp, chirp. Now, sit back and enjoy one of my favorite rounds of conversations. And in case you haven't figured it out by now, this is a perfect sample of what the future of my podcast will look like. Conversations face-to-face taking my lanyard off. <clears throat> How close do I have to get to this testing, testing? Is that good? That is good. How's I, my meter? How's my reading? Your your reading's good. Here we are on the flight deck. Thriller zone. All right. Whatever. Are you... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get ready, man. I just rolled out of bed. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're with Chris Haughty, author of The Devil You Know, the yes. Haley Chill series. Yes, you are. And man, you look fantastic so early in the morning. All things considered, I think that's quite an accomplishment. And did you do any laps this morning, perchance? I did. Uh, I brushed my teeth okay. this morning. <laughs> Every little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I prepare for these things. And how are you enjoying BoucherCon so far? Well, this is my first Boucher. Oh. It's my first Boucher. I, I missed a Boucher because of COVID, and and I missed a Boucher because of, uh, I don't know, being obstinate. But uh, this is my first, uh-huh. and I'm having a great time meeting my fellow authors, making new friends, and... Uh, meeting the fans. A lot of fans here today looking for you. A lot of fans. None of them mine. (laughs) I see a long line of fans in front of Jack Carr. Yeah, he's over there. And so I'm sort of soaking up the... The vibe of that, of that enthusiasm. You're in his wake. I'm in his wake. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, it is, it it has been a a tremendous uh, opportunity. I have never been to a voucher con and so this is my first and the crowds are amazing. I was talking to someone yesterday. They said last year it was like 800 people. This year it's like 1,600. That's twice as much, David. You are a mathematician. I amazing. Am. I know. So I know. early. Two times as many. Yeah. So <laughs> Two X. So let's talk about the devil you know real quick in okay. case I only have, because you're going to get bombarded by autograph seekers. Yes. What has happened since last time? We saw Haley Chill last. It was Storm Rising, right? Correct. Storm Rising. And she had uh, essentially saved the United States from uh, being divided into two polarized halves. Uh Uh-huh. And so she is instrumental in preventing that from happening. But at the cost of true personal loss. Right. And so when that book ends, she is in a bad place uh, emotionally and maybe even a little bit professionally in her role as a deeper state operative. So as The Devil You Know opens, Haley Chill is still 
in a bad place emotionally and professionally. And it's really all about her, of course, saving the day. Right. In this case, preventing the assassination of a second U.S. Supreme Court justice. I know. How do I do this? How do you do it? And at the same time, simultaneously, which means the same thing as at the same time, uh-huh. <laughs> she saves 19 school kids and their bus driver from certain horrific death on the idyllic island at the time yes. of Maui. Wow. Yeah. You, I noticed one thing. You're always ahead of your time. Every single book. Have you noticed this? Of course you have. It's weirdly prophetic. It's weird. Deep State started that way, and every single book, the book comes out within months. Something inside that book happens. It worries me. Well, Nostradamus comes to mind. It makes me wonder if the next book, if there's any more Haley Chill, what we what we could look forward to then or be afraid of. True. The next book, Mr. Temple. Yes, sir. Is a closely held top secret that I can't discuss on your podcast, unfortunately. But Chris, we're we're pals. I mean I know. Can we can we go off the record? Can we mute these microphones? Yes, hang on one second. Okay. Okay, so here's what's gonna happen. Ah! I'm not going to fall for that. I know you're just... No, uh, I'm very excited about what's coming next. I've been working quite hard, as you know. Yes. And uh, and I really think that this is going to be a big book uh, in the thriller world. I think... And, and is it... Can I ask if it's a Haley Chill book or is it a complete departure? Again... Top the, secret? These lips Are, be sealed. Okay. Well, it will be a thriller. We know that. Yes. There will be elements of mystery and suspense in it. Yes. It will be a page turner, a white knuckler. Yes. It will be a top seller. Yes. And F- fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And something tells me because you came from Hollywood business, I know that you have since, and I air quote the retired because you've just kind of stepped away from it. But yes, stepped y- away. You can uh, envision potentially this becoming a series or movie in your wildest dreams, right? Uh, the Haley Chill series or the new book? The new book. Both. Both. Yeah. Wow. We're, as soon as the strike is over, we're going to, we're going to, we have a, 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 a very uh, successful TV and movie producer who will uh, uh, take the book out. The I, I guess it's the whole series or maybe this deep state. I don't know how those things work. Um, so that will happen as soon as the strike's over. And yes, I think this new top secret uh, book that I'm working on and soon to 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 be soon to be finished uh-huh. uh, would make an excellent excellent movie. When you say soon to be finished, and I think we talked about this on one of our prior shows, do you take? Are you about a, a year ish at a time for a book? I'm just. I I think um, well. It depends which part of the process we're talking about. Yeah. From from idea to me turning it into my editor, uh, there are several drafts in between those two points. Sure. And I, I feel like my work isn't done, but it, where it's really all on me, uh-huh. that process usually takes about eight to ten months. Okay. The book I'm working on now will be about a year old come October. So we're, it's a little, uh, it's a, taking a little bit longer, but I'm taking more care with it because I, th- I think it's such a great idea, really a, a very ambitious, dare I say, audacious idea. Wait, ambitious and audacious? Both. Wow. Yeah. Ambacious. You know, the last time you were on the show when we were out in Glendale, or was that Pasadena? I can't recall. Yes. Um, we I, were. <laughs> we make up words on this podcast. And do you remember the word from that show? Babe, do you remember the word from that I show? I don't. I don't. But I do remember this one, Amdacious. Amdacious. It's the way that you can describe this new book. Okay. 
Now, I do know that we walked away because it, uh, it birthed a T-shirt, hashtag don't be boring. Right. Which has become a mantra of mine. I hear it everywhere I go. It's everywhere. I it's saw everywhere. It on, I think I saw it on a Times Square billboard. I think I see it on T-shirts. I see it yeah. on Coke cans. Yeah. There was. Uh, I came out of the BoucherCon yesterday for lunch uh-huh. with some of my author friends and there was skywriting. 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 Don't be boring. That's so, amazing. Yeah, everyone's catching on. And I, have you noticed the world is a more interesting place? It really is. And it's all because of Chris Haughty, author of The Devil You Know. H-A-U-T-Y. Yeah. Dot com. Dot com. <laughs> Here comes Alana. Hi. Is it, my blood sugar level is really low. Is it okay if I'm eating a little? You can do anything okay. you want for okay. crying out loud. Okay, I haven't loud. eaten anything, so I'm... We are with Alana Barry, I.S. Barry. The book is The Peacock and the Sparrow. And Alana, I got to tell you something. I, anybody who listens to this show knows that I am a book cover yes. fanatic. And this is single-handedly, and I'm I'm not even exactly sure why, one of the best book covers I've seen this year. Thank you. It's, That's such a compliment. It's striking. It's mysterious. It's colorful. It does everything you want in a book cover that says, what the hell is going on? You got this guy in the shadow, yes. lighting a cigarette. Yes. And then, of course, you have Ian Caldwell saying, a breathless tour de force, the perfect spy tale. Thank Bam. you. Thank you. Well, smoking figures pretty prominently in the book. <laughs> so It starts off with uh, something about, uh, I, yep. d- I don't like the smell of his cigarettes. That's and, right. Yeah. His informant. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Why the is there something very significant about that, and and is there's a purpose to that cover in the cigarette? A little the- bit. Um, so it starts off with the main character saying he hated the smell of his informant's cigarettes, and then there's a point in the book where he sort of bonds with the informant and they share cigarettes. It's like a turning point in the book. And I would say that with an experience of an ops officer of both uh, the Europe and the Middle East, that you're bringing all that CIA experience to light in this book. And this is a debut? Yes. I mean, I I would say this if you weren't here, so I'm not blowing smoke up your skirt, but there's a lot of buzz that this is going to be one of those books that everybody's talking about. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. And how does... I mean, that's... Got to make you feel great. It's such an honor. I mean, it's I, it's fabulous. Thank you. And it's so cool, and I mean this in all the absolute best ways, to have a woman write a spy novel. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it is. I feel like it's an honor. It's such a heavily male genre yes. that, um, yeah, I'm proud of the fact that I'm one of the only female spy novelists. I think I might be the only female spy novelist who used to be a spy. I hope I'm wrong, but <laughs> but I think I might be. So you can actually say officially that you were a spy. For sure. I had my cover lifted. There's a whole process behind that. And I had to have the book cleared. How does that... See, I I know nothing. I love to read spy novels. I I love that whole world of intrigue. Everybody does. But I've never really understood, A, how does someone become a spy? B, how do you go from that world into the regular world? Yeah, well, the um, the application process is pretty similar to any job. I mean, you really just send in your resume. <laughs> it's kind of a myth that they recruit you. Uh-huh. Um, and then leaving, was that your other question? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was actually harder. I mean, because you're in this sort of insular, paranoid world for so many years. Right. And then you leave and you're kind of looking behind your shoulder and... I mean, sometimes I still leave a car space between me and the car in front of me so I can have a quick egress in Uh case something happens. (laughs) So, yeah. Do you find yourself when you're driving home that you don't take the same pattern every time? I did when I first came back from Baghdad. I spent a year in Baghdad during the war, and I definitely, it took about a year to sort of reacclimate, and um, my my um, survival skills were still very right. much part of my life, um, but not anymore. First time I'd ever heard about that, my brother used to be in intelligence in the Air Force uh, in some, some division I still don't know what it is, and he said he never drove home the same way really? ever. And I was like, what does that like? He goes, you just get into the habit of it because you, you yeah. have to be prepared as though yeah. someone's possibly tailing you. It's true. I mean, the the instincts kind of die hard. Uh Um, And especially, it it was actually more of a concern when I worked at Langley at the headquarters, because then it's like you're taking the same route every day. And we used to joke, because there's a gas station across the street from Langley, and we used to joke, like, 
the Chinese, the Russians are probably just parked there watching the same cars go in every day. Can you do me this favor? Can you give me, because I have not had a chance to, yeah. this this uh, interview was sprung on me before I had a chance yeah. to really dig down on it. I'm going to read this book and I hope you'll come back and sure, be on the I'd show. Sure, I'd love to. But can you give me the elevator pitch for the Peacock yeah. and the Sparrow? It's basically about an aging spy stationed in Bahrain um, who gets caught in the crosswinds of the Arab Spring on his final tour. He gets ensnared in uh, murder, consuming love, and an unpredictable revolution, and um, he's forced to choose a side. That is so succinct. <laughs> yeah. I've had some practice. Yeah. That is amazing. And how has it been received from the people here at Bauschakot or and, and friends and family? You yeah. always start there. Really well, especially from people I think who appreciate a realistic spy novel. And actually, you know, I've been so flattered and honored because the Intel community really seems to love my book. I mean, I've gotten so many people who have reached out from inside the community uh-huh. and they just say it resonates with them. So so, and if this is slightly ignorant, just bear with me. It's not too much of a stretch. How, when you think of James Bond, yeah. James Bond is Hollywoodized yes. spy. For sure. So this is the antithesis to I that. would say so, okay. yeah. I think it's much grittier, um, darker. I think it's more in the vein of, um, of Le Carre okay. or Graham Greene, um, and yeah, I, I, or yeah, I wanted something that was much more realistic. I was going to say Le Carre is the very first person. That yes. Pops. When you say legitimate right. spy. And he, right. He didn't glamorize spying. No. I mean, he wrote about sort of the ugly realities and, you know, the geopolitics and the sometimes dark consequences of spying. Did you grow up wanting to be in CIA and the spy world and that whole mysterious segment of society? Definitely not. Um, I'm a lawyer by training, so yeah, I kind of anticipated a more, you know, practical route. Um, But I really, I studied abroad in college and and then I worked overseas after college as an editor for a newspaper in Prague during the 90s, um, which was sort of the left bank at the time, you know, the new left bank. And I kind of just fell in love with with the world beyond. I mean, at the time, that was communism had fallen, and it was a it was an area in transition, Eastern Europe, and and that really kind of sparked my my love of foreign affairs. Uh, speaking, since we are in the center of Bouchercon, what has been a highlight for you? What's what's something that you came here not expecting that you were pleasantly surprised with? I mean, just meeting the other authors yeah. has, I, I've just been blown away, um, and I, the, the level of support and camaraderie and meeting you, meeting Mystery Mike and um, the uh, Deadly Pleasures crowd, and yeah. I just, it's been wonderful. Isn't it neat, uh, and neat seems like such a shallow word except for the fact that it's such a neat idea that you can step into a world that is that one would think would be so highly competitive yeah. and yet is so open-arm welcoming and supportive. It's 100%. so wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, It is. I was blown away by how supportive writers are. It is the most supportive profession I've ever worked in. Yeah. I mean, I was a lawyer, I worked as a spy, and those were not professions where you're, you know, supporting the person next to you as much. No. It's much more cutthroat, and yeah. I'm just blown away by it. Do you have, uh, and I don't want to take away from the Peacock and the Sparrow, but do you have plans for a future uh, book, and is it in process, or is it? Yeah, I started writing, um, and it's going to be a spy novel. It's going to have a female protagonist, I think. Nice. Um, and I think it's going to be based on my experience spying in Baghdad. Um, I'm kind oh. of going to fictionalize it, um, and I'm focusing on one operation in particular uh, where I helped apprehend a, a top 10 terrorist target through my informant, only to learn later he might not be guilty. We might have gotten the wrong guy. So true. That part's true. Wow. So what is a movie or a TV series today or in the recent that would be similar to that story that you're going forward with? Sort of the same vibe, yeah. but the same. I, I really love the movie Beirut okay. with John Hamm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I felt like was so gritty and not overly glamorized. Yes, that's what we liked about it. Yeah. Wife. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, we you loved. You guys the, saw it. Yeah, yeah, and just fascinating. Yeah. Because sometimes they do this. It's so polished and yeah. so pretty that I'm like, is it really like? I mean, yeah, how much? you have people jumping from roofs and yeah. stealing cars and yeah. 
You know what series I loved was Babylon Berlin, which oh. is a German series, but they've dubbed it into English. It's not strictly a spy series, but it takes place in Weimar, Germany, um, just before the rise of the Nazi party. And um, But it's so dark and noirish and gritty, and it, it feels like a spy series. And that leads me to this final question, yeah. which is, um, and I know it's a dream, it's a dream of mine as a writer. Do you ha- had anybody interested in this turning this into either a film or a TV series? I have, yeah. Already? Yeah, um, yeah, a couple. I love it. Yeah, I think it's all sort of in flux now with the writer strike. Sure. So, but yeah, we have a couple, couple things. Maybe by the time you come onto the show, which is in the very near future, I trust. I'd love we that. We can maybe talk a little bit more, and you can that tell would be us wonderful. more. You know, I certainly don't want to uh, speak out of turn, but uh, thank you, well, Alana. Thank you so much. Thank this you is, so much. This was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Looking forward to reading the book again. Is the peacock and the sparrow? Thank you. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. And let me make sure I get this. Armando Lucas Correa. Correa. Like Korea, but okay, perfect, nice. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not that smart, so I got to really work on it. <laughs> the book is "The Silence in Her Eyes," and uh, I'd love to. How about this? We'll start off with a little elevator pitch. What this book is about? Uh, this book is about um, a girl. She's 20 year, 28 years old, and she's gonna be by herself for the first time in her whole life. She can see the movement. She's a kind of blindness, and she only see like uh, you know statues. Okay. Everything is stopped since the day she was eight years old. Oh wow! The sickness is called akinetopsia, and it's reversible. And she's creating a world around her with all these images around her. Oh, wow, it's yeah. almost, it's metaphysical, mystical. Yeah, and then, you know, she met the neighbor, uh-huh. a girl, and she transformed into her, and they create a craziness <laughs> in the middle of New York today, yeah. Which is where you live now, isn't it? it, uh, it the, whole, the whole book is in a, my apartment, that's the funny thing. Oh, it's my neighborhood, a- my bookstore. Everything is in, in my apartment. I love when it. When you open the door, you can see Morningside Park, and you can see the dog, and, uh, you know, I, I love creating this craziness around me. Yeah. yeah. You're the author of, uh, is it The German Girl? The German Girl, Now, yeah. that, that was a monster hit, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, that opened all the door for me, and I, 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 I was lucky because I remember... Uh, I, I was a friend of this editor, Johanna Castillo at Simon & Schuster. She, she can read in Spanish. And my first book, it was a kind of memoir in search of Emma. And I remember having a lunch with her, and she said to me, Armando, you have to write a novel. I said, Johanna, every writer has a novel under the bed. Yeah. And, and I, I remember the next uh, uh, lunch with her, and I presented all this idea about the German girl, you know, all the memorabilia that I have, all the, the stock, the original postcard from this St. Louis, you know, ocean liner with over 900 Jewish refugees, all of them with permit of disembarking Cuba in 1939, and Cuba denied the entrance, and United States and Canada, and then they sent them back to to Auschwitz, actually. And then I I created this story, and she said, okay, I'm going to buy the novel. I only have like a couple of pages and the whole idea, a couple of chapters, let's say. And and she said, uh, uh, Simon Schuss is going to take like uh, two weeks to make a decision. The next day, I have a contract (laughs) on my desk. And then I signed the book, and I was lucky enough that before the book was out, it was sold to over 12 countries. And then she signed me to another two books. You know, and sometimes editors and agents are lazy and yeah. they want to write, you know, they want me to write another historical novel. Right. And then I have The Daughter's Tale and The Night Traveler, that is the one that is out. But when I finished The German Girl, I presented the idea for the silence in her eyes. He said, Normando, don't write any thriller. You are good at, you know, historical novel. And the German girl sold over one million copies. And then, wow. you know, they want me to stay in the same boat. And when they said, okay, I'm going to write the book for my... This is the only book that I finished and I sold finished. 
because you know all of them uh, they were ideas and yeah. a paragraph sometimes a sentence yeah and then when I finished she loved the book yeah and my editor Peter Borland at uh, at Atria uh, you know he was a wonderful editor because it's a new genre it's difficult uh, it's a completely a way to write when you are doing this kind of thing. What do you suppose was the magic? I know that's a tough question, but what is the magic that made that book skyrocket? Uh, the silence, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the the idea to create this kind of fantasy. Uh-huh. Because, you know, uh, I, I don't know, you heard before akinetopsia, the sickness, I never heard about it. Right. You know, I want to create some kind of sickness with her. Uh-huh. And there, there another kind of blindness that you can define the face. Yes. You know, this is this is real. But for me, this is like a fantasy. Right. It's, it's stop motion is, uh-huh. is different when you can see the movement. Sure. And I, I started studying. I did a lot of research about this because, you, you know, it's in first person. Uh-huh. You have to write like you are in, in her mind. Right. Uh, seeing all this work and and creating a story in every person that is stopping you. Right. Because the only way you you lost the person is when you blink. You know, oh. If, if you are here right uh-huh. now, I'm going to see you forever right. until I blink. Maybe you left already. Oh, wow. But I can smell that you left. I can listen your steps, you know. And then on, then if she loves someone, she wants to stay here. If she blink, she lost the image of the person that she loved. That is so amazing. Yeah, I've then, never heard you know, of this. Yeah, me neither. There is a lot of video on YouTube, some cases sure. in Germany, and how they see, you know, if you go to the subway, they function better when they have the eyes closed and uh-huh. they use the, you know... The, the walking stick. Exactly. Yeah. And because with the eye... You can see the car here. You can see everything. Yeah. The good thing is they have like a good sense of smell sure. and noise. Everything and overcompensates. Exactly. Yeah. And and but for her, it's like a, when it's a you know a taxi is like a yellow cloud. Yeah. You know? And and the rain is beautiful. The rain. There are glass, like a piece of glass until like you blink. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love it. Yeah, it's fascinating. (laughs) I've never heard anything. Well, now I understand why the cover is done in like this repeat pattern. Um, Mm. Well, you know, having come from a a background of journalist editor Mm -hmm. has got to have influenced you strongly to be such a strong author. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I think... Well, I am an editor, yeah. and, and I am love to be edited. Yeah. You know, I, be, I I believe in editors. You know, um, and you're and a big they, fan of that. Oh yes, yeah. yes. And for example, uh, uh, you always fight with your editor when when you finish your first draft, you send your masterpiece. You think it's a masterpiece, right? And then when the editor, of course, the first paragraph, you are brilliant, you are a genius, and then yeah, you then know, they... step one, step two, <laughs> say he's crazy. But the next morning, I said he was right. You know? Yeah. And then you start working. And for me, it's, it's their problem. I don't have any problem to finish a book. Right. If you want me to write another scene, I'm going to write another scene. Sure. Yeah. And I am my first editor at the same time because, for example, this is uh, around 100,000 words. Uh-huh. But I finished over 200,000 words. And I cut in. And I'm cutting because I prefer to have the whole atmosphere. Right. And I know I am very conscious for the pace because... Uh, uh, my major was theater critic, uh-huh. and, and I study theater, and I create a scene. I know, you know, the next action has to happen. I, I don't want to be, you know, you be bored. Less is more. Exactly. Yeah. And and for other plays, I, I when I'm reading, I want to enter to a room, to feel it, to see the wallpaper, yeah. the texture. You know, I am. I, I think I'm good at it. Yeah. Sometimes too much, but. You know, I love to, uh, because some kind of writer, and it's valid, because I love it, you know, they, uh, you are reading their thinking. Sure. But I want you to to feel like uh, the character and go to the room and you go want to, to the You want to inhabit that entire exactly. world. Yeah. yeah. Well, are you telling me that The German Girl is your very first book? Yeah. And you did a million copies on your very first book? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I was going to say there are people at this convention, <laughs> Bachelorette, that dream decades 
dreaming to yeah. get where you've gotten. So it, you, it has to just hit you in such a profound way. I think with the German girl, there was an, this story was with me since I was 10 years old. You know, yeah. my grandmother, she's a daughter of a Spanish immigrant. They arrived in Cuba at the beginning of the 20th century, and she was pregnant with my mom when uh, the St. Louis arrived and were rejected. And, right. And I remember growing up during the 80s in Cuba, I was a, a child, and my grandmother fighting with my grandfather. Cuba is going to pay very dearly for the next 100 years because what they did to the Jewish refugees. And then I started, you know, doing... I, I, I was a kind of child that instead of reading about cowboys or, you know, I read about the Second World War yeah. all the time. I was obsessed with the Second World War because of my grandfather at the same time. He loved sure. history, and I, I was passionate about history. And for my mind, I said, can this happen in the, you know, because the Second World War happened in the, second, in, in the 20th century in the, the most civilized continent in the world, in the most civilized country in the world. Right. That happened in our countries, you know, in the Third World, but not in the First World. And for me, I have a fascination about that. And I started, you know, collecting story. I was thinking to write a non-fiction book. I have the survivor of the book, you know, the children of the St. Louis. Right. And when Johanna talked to me, uh -huh. I said, okay, maybe happy. I am became a father. I, I always said that my daughter, she's 17 now, uh, she, uh, she made me a writer. Uh -huh. Because uh, I remember the... Why the, is that? Uh, because... Because the German girl, that it was going to be a non-fiction book, started, you know, in the voice of a 12 years old. You know, the first sentence is more or less like, I'm going to be 12 years old, I decided to kill my parents. You know, that's the first sentence. And at the beginning, it was nine years old. Thing. You know, she was growing up with Emma, in, 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 in a way. And, and all the emotion and the, the father with the daughters and mother with the daughters is because of... I am a father, I think. Yeah. I cried a lot. Yeah. I make people cry. I love make people cry. You like to <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, and and this is since I became a father, you know. If yeah. you talk to me about your dog, maybe I can cry right now. Right. You know, I am You're an emotional guy. I, I am emotional. Yeah. And I, 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 I love to create emotional connection with a reader. And right. I think that's my key when I did the the German girl. Yeah. And so with silence in her eyes, it is it is a thriller. It's a thriller. Uh -huh. uh, yes, because you know, uh, I, I, I am not going to spoil the book, but right. you, you see this delicate woman. Right. Uh, she looks very young, younger than the 28 years old. She's living by herself. She's in love with the delivery guy, with the, the guy in the book. She's a good reader. She's uh -huh. all the time reading. Right. And... And then she thinks that she's helping her neighbor, that is her only friend, because she's, you know, she's living a, like a, a nightmare with her husband. He's oh. abusive. Oh. And then a, a terrible thing happens. Something happens. At the end of the we'll first chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then everything changed. And wow. nothing is what you read. Nothing is what you think it is. Yeah, that's what I love. I love <laughs> books that make you do yeah. that. It's like, oh, but at the oh, same I'm going time, you you are gonna see her emotion and the relationship with the mother and who is the bad people here. You never know who is the bad yeah. seed. No. Well, as we get ready to wrap, tell me about what's been one of your favorite things that's happened here at BoucherCon. Whether it's a, a panel or someone you've met, what's oh, what's it, a it was the dinner last night. Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, Mike, I don't know. It, he organized this kind of dinner since the beginning of the uh, the convention with over forty people, I think. Wow. Um, most of them writer, publicist, bookseller, and I'm, you know, I I, I am very introvert for me it's hard to make sure. like a connection in this kind I, of big I, I don't thing. believe that at all but go and, ahead and no believe me <laughs> and right now I'm talking to you sure and, and I but it's hard for me and then in the table I met another author I met Jack Carr yeah we're in the same you know uh, in print uh, yeah. publishing house and it was wonderful and everybody's nice you know it's different yeah believe me uh, people from the thriller world is completely different from the literary world it's and how is that what's the biggest they're more they're friendly uh -huh. you know they talk to you literary or a thriller a thriller yeah much yeah. very friendly very oh, approachable approachable yeah. and they talk to you they ask about your book yeah 
and literary not so much no 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 they only talk about them oh yeah all yeah. the time yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's nice you know I'm not against anybody sure 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 but it's a, it's a different world yeah. you know well, Armando, I wish you huge success. I don't think you Thank need you. a whole lot of wishes because you, you're, you're doing <laughs> something you. right. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. Okay. Such a Thank blessing. Thank you, guys. You want to finish your app? No, no, no. Okay. I'll eat it after. Catherine McKenzie has written a book called Have You Seen Her? And she's right here on the Thriller Zone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, how about Bauschercon so far? Having the big thrill of your life? It's been fun, for sure. Maybe you can hear it in my voice. Yeah. Too much talking. Uh, maybe too much talking at the bar. <laughs> Was last night particularly... I mean, you know, Fridays and Saturdays tend to be the big... Yeah, I think actually Thursday night was my big night. I, I went to bed a little earlier yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what's been a highlight so far for you? Um, just It's always fun to meet with other writers and meet some fans and... Uh, one of my editors is here, so I've been hanging out with her, so it's been fun, too. Tell us, uh, so we can jump into a little bit of a uh, elevator pitch, because uh, I, I have not had a chance to read the book. It just was presented to me, but... What? No, I know. it's fine. I'm storming <laughs> out of here. It's okay. <laughs> Tell me about this book. Uh, so Have You Seen Her is the story of Cassie Peters, and she is leaving New York for reasons which we will discover eventually, of course, um, to go join the search and rescue squad in Yosemite National Park, which she had done 10 years earlier. Soon after she gets there, a couple goes missing, and it echoes another disappearance of a couple 10 years earlier that she was also involved in. Wow. <laughs> Pulls you right in. Now... Has this, I was reading that you have, a lot of your work's been optioned for television. True. Is this one also in this that? This one has not yet, I'm going to say yet, I'm going to be positive, <laughs> it has not yet been optioned, no. And where can we possibly see some of this show up? Besides the top-selling book lists. Oh, right, right. Uh, well, nothing's been made yet, you know, Hollywood, which is on strike. Yes. Um, the vagaries of that. But, uh, yeah, I have various projects at various stages of development. Um, one of my books, I'll Never Tell, they've actually written two scripts for it. And so maybe it'll become a TV show if the strike, when the strike gets resolved. For someone uh, who is listening to the show that doesn't quite know how that machine works, yeah. can you walk me through that? So if, if Hollywood comes to you and says, Catherine, we love your book. We want to turn it into a TV series. Right. How, how does that happen? So they, they do what's called option the book, which is they give you some money to have the right to produce it, usually for a year, 18 months. And then they normally try and find a screenwriter to write a script, come up with a pitch and write a script. Um, and if they like that, then they go to networks to try and get a deal. And if the network likes it, then they ask for a bunch of revisions and maybe they ask for a second script. And then eventually, if they actually go to make the first episode, they have to write a check to the author to buy the rights at that point. And anywhere along that process, anything can go wrong. So... So you can get paid as an option for yes. them to just have the permission. The permission, And then exactly. when it actually happens, you get paid again. And yes. then if it's super successful, you get paid again. You get paid every episode of TV. There's a fee that they you get paid, yeah. How many people do you think see stories like yours? Right. And, they, and, and, I, and I have a very specific reason for this. <laughs> and they go, oh, well, that's what I want to do. And they get into the business thinking... It happened. It always happens that way. Oh yeah. I mean, I've definitely read stories like that. Um, I, I think once every six months, somebody on Twitter is like, "I'm going to start writing to make to get rich," you know, and everyone starts to laugh. Obviously, um, I don't know if that's happened, you know, for my books in particular. But I've met a few people who have said that they started writing because they read my books, which is always kind of very cool. Uh -huh. um, but I don't know. I mean, I I was, you know, people liking getting a book deal to winning the lottery. And I think getting your book made into a TV show or a movie is like, I don't even know what that's like winning the super Powerball. Yeah. <laughs> and then 
for it to be good on top of it, then that's another whole thing, right? So, you mean good, the adaptation yeah, that they do? Yeah, okay. yeah, right. It's easy to make bad TV. Yeah. It's hard as we've to make, seen. as we've seen, it's hard to make good TV. So, Speaking of bad, and you started off the conversation a little bit with the strike, how does that hit you? How does that make you feel? What do you think about this? Well, I had a bunch of projects that were like about to go um, right before the strike. Um, so, you know, I was a little too personally disappointing, obviously, and hopefully those will all get revived afterwards. But I think it's super important. Um, I think that, and it, you know, we don't have a union in the book business, but maybe we should. Um, But uh, I think that there's been a a power imbalance that's really happened in the industry where the people who produce the content are kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, which seems a bit inverted to me. Um, Not that it's not hard to run a studio, but I feel like there's more than one or two people who could run studios probably for a little <laughs> bit less money than $250 million a year. Like, I'd do it for five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me some training. I feel like I could learn how to do that job. Um, but, you know, original, fresh ideas are harder to come by than you'd think. And yeah. so um, I think people should be able to make a living doing a creative pursuit. And Lee Goldberg was on the show recently and had the greatest thing. He said, you know, the guys who are making the decisions are making millions of dollars. Millions. However, all we're asking for is like a hundred thousand. Yeah. You know, a, a, a token of money because we created it. And I said, it comes down to one word and we said it simultaneously, greed. And it always is, isn't it? It is. And I mean, again, I'm not anti-capitalist. Sure. There's enough money to go around for everyone, I think is the point. That's and, the You know, the line. WGA has, I think, been amazing at their communication, which they're writers, they should be. Um, and uh, they've put out a graphic that showed that, like, what we were asking for is, like, 0.18% or something of last year's earnings what? by the companies. It's nothing. We're asking for nothing. Um, and to, to be told and to hear from, again, people who are making 50, $100 million a year that, like, we have unrealistic financial expectations or we're greedy is it's hard to swallow, you know? <laughs> that same conversation, if I may continue, is the fact that everyone gets bent out of shape on, uh, well, I need more money. But, yeah, but we just need a little bit more because right. to in order to propagate more good stories so they go well we won't we we just go ai so we had this whole conversation right. about ai right. the thing about ai it regurgitates information that already exists so what you're going to do is get a watered down version of everything that's already happened in the past yeah i think so i mean who knows where ai is going to go it's yeah. in its infancy do I believe that they put out the best version of that for free? No, they probably have a better version, yeah. you know, behind the scenes. And um, and and I think that AI in some industries has been super helpful, you know. Sure. And we all use aspects of AI without thinking about it. Spell check is an early version of AI, right? So, um, but. Uh, yeah, again, I think that comes down to just like sometimes a lack of respect for how, how we're all here, you know, like we're, there aren't books if there aren't writers, you know, and it doesn't mean that editorial and the cover designers and the production side of it and the management side are important, but they're not more important. And that's what I've just found always fascinating is like, how did you become more important than the people who are cre- like... People, I, I think, in general, don't buy books because of an imprint. They buy books because of an author. Exactly. Right? Yes. And they don't. They're not like, oh, this person is president of this such and such book company, so I'm going to go buy all their books. They don't care about that. Right. You know. Right. They care about Jack Carr, exactly. who's just sitting right over here. Right. You know, that's who they came to see, and that's whose books they want to read. So. And they came to see you too. Oh, that's kind. <laughs> I saw quite a lineup in front of, in front of oh, you. Oh, I think that was two people, but they are very <laughs> kind. <laughs> I saw a line. I think it's on the inside. Jack jacket of your book it's easy to disappear when no one is watching right when i read that that right there between a good cover and a and a byline like that yeah it makes me want to read it oh good this is not a series it's not a series no do you have any series do you have plans for series i don't have any series right now but i am writing a series so finally after 15 books i figured out well maybe i should write a series that might be a good idea oh it's 15 <laughs> yeah i've written oh, 15 wow. books 15 standalones wow yeah yeah, now, yeah, yeah yeah i got a quick question before you go a lot of people go back and forth about this they a lot of authors i just love 
one original idea and move on to the next one, like you, 15 right. in a row. Others say, I, I create this one character and I want to build an entire world and I build a nice career out of it. Do you think there's a right or wrong way, a better or a less better way? No, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. I think I always a big believer that you have to be passionate about what you're writing about. And if you are, hopefully that will connect with an audience. So if you're just doing something because it's like, oh, I think this is what's marketable, um, you know, that's going to come through. Sure. So for me, I always... The way I, my process was, I knew I was done with this story when I didn't have any questions about the characters anymore, and I kind of didn't care about them anymore. I know that sounds cold, but I'm like, I was done with them. We spent time together, and now it's over. So for me, the challenge in writing a series was coming up with a character that I wanted to spend more than one book with. Uh-huh. So, so far, so good. I'm writing book two, and we'll see. First of all, congratulations on Have You Seen Her? Thank you. Second of all, I wish you huge success when the strike is over and all your stuff gets reacquired and put back into motion and I can't wait to see what this series is about. All right. Well, and, thank you. And when can we expect that first It's coming out next year, but I can't announce it yet it's still. Sure. But next year. Yeah. And will we see you at Vatricon uh, next year? It's going to be in Asheville? Yeah, undoubtedly, I'm sure. All yes. right. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Nice. Thank you. Katie Hayes, author of The Cloisters, is on The Thriller Zone. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is your debut. It is. I love meeting debut authors. You know why? Why? Because I get to see you when it's all fresh and new and everything's (laughs) exciting before you blow up. Right. Or before we are exhausted. Yeah. (laughs) Either way, it works. Well, how about this? Since I didn't have enough time to read that in the 14 minutes that I had preparing... Can you give me a little uh, elevator pitch of it? Yeah, The Cloisters is the story of a young woman who goes to work at the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Medieval Museum, the eponymous Cloisters, which is a 14th century monastery that was moved from Europe to the northern tip of Manhattan by um, John D. Rockefeller. And while she's working at The Cloisters, she discovers a 15th century deck of tarot cards that may actually tell the future. And so it's about whether or not she can use the cards to unravel a murder that happens at the museum. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Have uh, I tempted you now to read it? Yes. And I want to say this. There, I get uh, probably four or five books a week to come into the Thriller Zone. And I probably read two a week. And everyone who listens to the show knows that I'm a fanatic for book covers. And this is one of the most beautiful book covers ever. Oh, thank you. They did a they did a wonderful job. I mean, but the the color of blue and the way it kind of shimmers in the light, it's just you can't you can't forget this cover. Yeah. It's lovely. I mean, especially with the gold foil, it yeah. just really pops. And so that is based loosely on something that actually happened. That building literally was the, yeah, so the Cloisters is a real place, and this is something that actually a lot of readers ask or don't know. If you're not familiar with the Metropolitan Museum of Art's n- northern branch, they have obviously the main Met on Fifth Sh- Avenue, sure. which everyone knows, but they also have a museum at the northern tip of Manhattan in Fort Tryon Park that is dedicated solely to medieval art, and that is the Cloisters Museum, and it was kind of a European folly built by the son of, you know, one of the original American robber barons, and he had a personal medieval art collection, and he wanted a place to house it. And so he went to the Pyrenees in France and bought up all of this sort of tumble-down stone from a cloister and a monastery there, and he shipped all of the stones to the northern tip of Manhattan, to this park, to create a museum for his private collection, which now houses more than just his private collection. But it's an incredible, if you're ever in New York and you want sort of something out of the ordinary, the Cloisters is a great place to visit. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, so tell me, this is going to seem like a silly question. It's a debut book and a New York Times bestseller. So that means you came out of the gate with a major hit. 
Yeah, I mean, the pressure's on now, right? Yeah, I yeah. think that's the challenge. Um, no, I was incredibly lucky. The book was chosen as a read with Jenna book club pick uh, for the Today Show's book club, which was a really wonderful experience. They're an incredible team. They did a great job by the book. And it has been a really lucky first book experience. How many people do you think, especially here at VoucherCon, where they're, you know, authors are daydreaming of being in your shoes. How hard do you think it is to come out of the gate with a hit like that? And, you know, and did you ever have that dream? It's funny because the book is a lot about whether or not um, luck plays a significant role in our life. Uh -huh. And I think the reality is that any of the books here are strong enough books to be New York Times bestsellers. I think that there is kind of a golden ticket when you get a book club pick. I mean, it's sort of like winning the debut author lottery. Right. Um, and this book just happened to win it. And I think for me, the best thing about that is that it has an opportunity then to find more readers than it might otherwise. And so I think that's been really great is to see more readers having access to the book. And it's been a wonderful experience. And what's interesting is it's not your classic straight ahead thriller. It's more mystery suspense oriented so the yeah. fact that you're 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 basically able to cover two grounds at once yeah you know i think if you were a true blue thriller reader and you come to this i don't think the pacing will be quite up to your thriller standards uh -huh. i would say this is more of a literary suspense novel or a upmarket suspense novel so it doesn't move with the kind of quick clip of a lot of thrillers um but I do think that, yeah, it's deeply rooted in the mystery space. I'm a big reader. Um, obviously, most writers start as readers. And I'm a big reader of um, authors like Patricia Highsmith mm. and Megan Abbott and writers that work sort of in a darker, noir, slower mode. I, I'm obviously like a huge Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett fan, too. Sure. I'm a Californian, so there's nothing I love more than some California noir. Um, and I think that it's really a book that will be great for readers who love those authors as well. Awesome. And I have to ask the obvious question is, what are you working on next? Oh my gosh, I just turned in my second book to my editor, so she's reading it now, and I'm really not good at pitching it yet, which is something, you know, obviously I gave you a one-sentence summary sure. on this, but that's two years in the making, three years in the making, uh, but it's the story of a man whose wife is found dead on the island of Capri, and he lives under the suspicion of having killed her for 30 years, but is exonerated of the crime. And he returns to the island with his daughter. And again, someone dies 30 years later. And it it's about the unraveling of the family in the wake of this second death and how it causes them to question everything that came before. And that one is definitely more paced like a thriller. It really, from right from the get-go, is just foot on the gas kind of wonderful. And I, I love the setting. For me, in a book, I want to travel someplace uh -huh. that you want to spend six to eight hours. So the island of Capri is this kind of weird and magical place that is both, you know, everyone there, it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of LA. Everyone there is kind of performing something that they want to be or yeah. are hoping to be. So it's a lot about appearances, illusions, things like that. Yeah. Well, the book, again, is The Cloisters. The uh, author is Katie Hayes. And boy, it's uh, again, a beautiful uh, cover. I can't wait to read it. And I would love to have you back on the show when we could yeah. dig deeper. Great. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. All right. Look at this. I haven't seen the small one. Yeah, this is the That's baby. Nice. Yeah. Really Dude, nice. I've been watching your uh, equipment update. It's pretty serious. You, I don't even, I can't do it. Like when I had, I had this the thing, not yeah. the computer. I wasn't that. Uh, we can talk about it. Should we talk about it on the thing? I'm talking right now. Oh my goodness! Do I have a headset or no? No. You, oh, do you need to? I'm just doing it to. so I can hear the reference. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. No, so I started with uh, the larger. Did you say it, Rodi? Roadcaster Pro. Yeah. Roadcaster Pro. So the large one. Yeah. And then just a camera. So uh -huh. I don't know if there's a, anyway, just the camera on a tripod. Uh huh. And that's it. And you yeah. put the two cards in, and then record, record. Yeah. 
and go. Yeah. And I had headsets. And yeah. that was it. That was pretty much it. Now, there's no way I could possibly do it. Now, there's a podcast tech comes in, sits down. It's still the the, the road roadie Road thing. Maybe a news yeah. one. Uh-huh. Maybe a newer one. But it's hooked up to like multiple screens oh, and yeah. multiple cameras all over the place and angles and the whole. I can't. I don't even know how to turn it on. By the way, we're with Jack Carr. Oh. In case anyone hasn't recognized the voice yet. Yeah. We do have video as well. You have well, the voice. So, well. I'm trying to emulate it right now. Like, just by like, <laughs> it's, it's it. You got the voice for this. Yeah, but you got the oh, talent. Man, right? man. How are you doing? <laughs> no, but seriously, I watch your videos and I always, pe- I'm waiting for that wide shot. I'm like, what's, what, what new toy Jack's that, got now? I did a little walk around when it first, like last, uh, last August, I think, is when they finally finished it. Um, and I did a little walk around and I yeah. showed the, the, everything in there. But now it, it looks not as clean as it did then because that's where I also put all the, when the gear segments come yeah. in, when people send me things, <laughs> I do it and then it stays in there and it's just been piling up. So it's a little bit, a little bit crazy. So looking for, I think I'm going to move out into uh, an office space uh, in town that's a little bigger and kind uh, of move out of the garage. I'm going to geek out on you a little bit. Let's do it. Because I've watched this since day one. I've been, I was there back in Thriller Fest 2019 and you had actually premiered before that. But I've been watching this meteoric rise, uh-huh. and Tammy and I talk all the time, how the hell does he manage this empire? And every time I turn around, it just goes boom, boom, boom. It's chaos. It's constant chaos. Uh, three kiddos, three kiddos that so are juggling the three kiddos. Yeah. And my wife kind of holds down down the fort, but it's still, uh, I write very late at night. Yeah. I'm always late with deadlines. Yeah. Um, I pulled a couple all-nighters this time, and they're getting harder and harder to yeah. do. Like for Savage Sun, third book, I pulled maybe one or two all-nighters, and it was still like, oh, okay, you know, I'm feeling it a little bit, yeah. but I can still push through. <laughs> this last one, three all-nighters in a week and a half, and it was painful. Like I felt it much more, and it's only been about three years from Savage Sun to this one, but yeah. I definitely felt it a lot more. Yeah. This one, three years on, yeah. It, uh, but no, it's just all prioritize every day and some things get missed and I'll have to pick them back up again and it's constant juggling uh, always thinking about how to do it better always thinking how to be more effective and efficient um, even in the midst of the chaos uh, and always adding new things to grow and do those things at uh, the same like the the level that my other projects are are Uh so it's just hopefully everything's making each other better as I as I grow but my first nonfiction comes out in October of 2024 so adding that to the mix Tom Clancy started doing that uh, in the early 90s so I think it was after book six I want to say but it might be might have been after book five but uh, he started doing the nonfiction then Uh he started adding you know more things to what he was he was doing so my first nonfiction book is on the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing there's a lot of newly declassified documents that have come out in the last few years so now you can piece together what was happening in the White House and who was making decisions, whether to put Marines ashore or keep them on ships in the Med and um, what level of involvement we were going to have in in Lebanon. So with that and then going and talking to survivors who were pulling their friends out of the rubble and uh, talking to people who went to identify bodies, same, the same team that identified the bodies at Jonestown got sent to Beirut, Lebanon after the after the bombing. So there's uh, you can piece together this, this whole story and I won't say how it ends, people don't know how it ends. <laughs> Because there's a uh, 2008, there's something that happens that's extremely significant um, all those years later. So it has a beginning, middle, and an end that almost reads like a like a thriller. But I want to keep that history alive and keep those lessons alive so that future generations don't have to learn those same lessons in blood. The the way that you, the speed with which you move through life is always been amazing to me. And so only the debt most recently will you try to do a nonfiction and a fiction simultaneously each year from that, that was the idea yeah. when I when I pitched it to Simon and Schuster and they loved it very soon thereafter <laughs> I realized that uh, no it's gonna be every two years I call them back up and I said I, I know what the contract says but there's no possible way to do these events justice uh, in a year no. so you have to it's gonna be every two years and if it takes longer than that it's gonna take longer than that it's always about the product it's always about doing the best type possibly can with the stories or with these new nonfiction uh, works. And I'm working with a guy, uh, amazing guy, James Scott, Pulitzer Prize finalist, historian. So he's flying around the country doing all these interviews, digging through archives uh, right now. And well, we're putting the story together uh, this fall and start editing and get it out there by October of 2024. And let's talk about the TV series. I mean, TV series. Yeah, yeah. 
when when that all came together, and everybody knows this terminalist, how that all came together, did you have any idea in your wildest dreams that it would go to the level that it went so quickly and so broadly? I probably should lie when I answer this question, um, <laughs> but uh, I just that's what I always expected. Yeah. Um, and not just expected by sitting there, though. Um, expected, hoped, I guess, uh, but also knowing that you have to, that I had to put in the work throughout my whole life for that to happen. Sure. Um, but as a kid, I'm looking at uh, First Blood, and I'm looking at uh, the book and the movie. I'm looking at uh, Brotherhood of the Rose, the book, and the NBC adaptation, uh, and I'm taking note of all these things, and I'm learning, and I'm absorbing, and I'm finding out what I like and what I don't, and um, just making it a part of my experience and my foundation. So when I got to to the show and was fortunate enough to put a team together that uh, was the exact team I wanted, and there's a lot of trust in Hollywood also. Sure. So if you hand your, because you're handing this over, especially as a brand new author that no one knows and you're not coming from politics and sports, no background in social media, no following, nothing. Right. So when you when you option something at that stage, uh, by contract, you they can do whatever they want. Right. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of trust involved in having Chris and Antoine Fuqua uh, involved in this from the get-go and them wanting me involved at every step of the process. So I became a, a student of screenwriting and the whole ho- process in Hollywood and on set I'm going around all the different uh, departments and, and talking to everybody and they're coming to, to see me and I'm talking to them about what they're doing. So I'm just constantly learning. So the new new uh, origin story mm-hmm. and that comes out, that'll come out first. We'll start filming that first, uh, writer Strike Dependent and then uh, going True Believer, the second book. So I'm um, writing one of the episodes for both of those, and it's go, go, go. But as soon as the writer strikes over, we should start filming. Just How saying. do you like the screenwriting aspect in, uh, in comparison to... I'm, well, novel. I'm hoping that one complements the other because they are so different. Novel oh, yeah. is just me, so yep. if people hate it, whatever, it, it that's all on me. Yeah. And I never think about uh, reviews, critics, audience, losing an audience, gaining an I never think of any of that. It's all about the story. Right. So 100% heart and soul goes into it. I honor the story. I never think, oh, is someone not going to like this? Yeah. Or is this going to alienate somebody? Or what's popular right now? Yeah. Or should my chapters be shorter? Or should they be long? No, yeah. never, ever any of that. It's all about the story. Um, um, and in screenwriting, now this is a collaborative effort. Oh, yeah. This screenwriting is a team effort, meaning that uh, you have to, especially if you're new, really choose your battles, build up political capital, uh-huh. and then decide how you're going to expend that. Uh, is it going to be uh, something here that's really not going to make too much of a difference and it's probably going to end up on the cutting room floor? Right. Or is it something big uh, where you really need to draw that line in the sand where you know you're going to lose your audience if you go down a certain path? So sure. you have to figure that out. That's the art of it, the art of leadership, right. um, the art of working with a team. And uh, so very, very different. This, I'm just locked upstairs yeah. in the house and uh, trying to write without interruption. Uh, screenwriting, you're sending scripts back and forth. They're going up the chain all the way to the top of Amazon, back down with notes. They're going to Chris. They're going to Antoine. More notes coming in. You're they're talking about things. You're collaborating. You're changing. You're coming up with a reason not to change, if that's the case. And so it's a very collaborative process. So very different. And there are rules. In here, in the books, yeah. no rules. No rules. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, I can blow up the Golden Gate Bridge. I can go jet around the world. I yeah. can do anything. Uh, screenwriting, not so much. Yeah. You have... Uh, 45 minutes to an hour to tell a story and you have to tell it in a certain location and there's a budget and there's and there's this really it's the time though yeah that's the real limiting factor and so you have to get very good at telling this story that's going to connect with people within those constraints yeah those constraints constraints do not exist in a novel do you have a preference does it matter to you um i like both but i started as a reader, uh-huh. uh, I didn't start reading screenplays as a kid. I'm reading books as a kid, sure. but I'm still a student of film sure. from the audience perspective, oh, yeah. from the fan perspective. Yeah. Um, so I like them both, but uh, my foundation will always be the, the novels. You also made a great comment when you were on the podcast, uh, and Mark Graney shares this uh, mentality, and he goes, and you both said this, when people will go, oh, but the book, Jack's book was so much better than the TV show. You both said, I created this, Hollywood created that. This is my story, and that's their interpretation. And I always like the idea that you guys said that because what you're doing is you're saying their art form is their art form. 
Yeah, it's an adaptation. It's yeah. not, they're not just like taking every single line in here and putting it into a script, copying and pasting right. um, because of those constraints. So sometimes three characters might get morphed into one. Some characters might not even make it because you have eight hours total right. to tell, eight episodes to tell this thing. Um, so, and I always went, in, I went into it just knowing that First Blood, the book, very different than First Blood, the movie, both fantastic, yeah. two totally different mediums in which to tell a story. Um, but I went into it knowing that there were going to be changes and wanting to be a student of, uh, of that process. So, um, but I, but I love being involved with it, but then again, if it's horrible, then you got to take ownership. You can't say Hollywood screwed it up because now you're a part of this machine. Right. And so you got to take ownership of that. If people hate it, you know, that's just, yeah. yeah, Okay. That's how it goes. But, uh, but I love, I love both. Uh, I love every part of the process. Do you ever, Jack, do you ever get to the point where you just go, I would like to take a big, long, deep breath. Cause I know you've got between books Fiction, nonfiction, your online store, which is crazy successful, and all your product launches, and the TV and movies. Do you ever just go, could I grab a little breath, or, or do you go, I'm making hay while the, whatever yeah. that phrase is? Yeah, well, the sun shines. Uh, yeah. So, no, because I've, not until just now. Uh, so, thanks. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, no, I, I think of it more in terms of how do I, how do I do this better? How do I focus on doing the things that only I can do? Yeah. Uh, and how do I, um, take some of the things that maybe I don't have to do and give those to somebody else. So I'm bringing on uh, a chief of staff that can help do some of those, those things that maybe I don't have to be yeah. doing, take over like some emails and meetings and schedules and all that sort of a thing, uh, and act as a more of a protector barrier so that I can just focus on the writing and yeah. I'm not also doing all of those things. So it's time to professionalize a little bit so I can work on this next book, book number seven, work on the nonfiction. There's some other projects that haven't been announced yet that are also in the works. So there's a lot to uh, to manage and a lot of those things are things that only I can do. Yeah. So anything that maybe somebody else can do, yeah. I'm going to outsource that and uh, delegate that here in the next uh, few months. I and think. I think I know of a wife and three children that would probably <laughs> applaud that. that be, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's busy times, but I try to put the pen down, close the computer, put the phone in the other room, and uh, just spend time with them when we're together after school or right, picking up the, the youngest at lacrosse practice yeah. or whatever it is, then I'm, I'm trying to you know be off. Uh, and then only when he gets goes to bed, then I'm back on for another few hours of uninterrupted work uh, and then up and back after it again in the morning. And did you tell us just before we came on, daughter is in yeah, college yeah, now? Yeah, so college there. We have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. Um, but it's uh, it's still constant chaos. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just how how life is. But but uh, but I love it. And you got to realize that uh, you know the kids aren't going to be around for uh, for that much longer. Yep. So you got to uh, uh, embrace it while you can and uh, and love every minute of it because you'll miss it when they're when they're gone. So sure. that's kind of how I, I look at it. And since we're sitting in the middle of BoucherCon. What, you were a surprise guest at the last minute, weren't you? What, what, yes. what made you decide yes. to come back well, I wanted to the old stomping ground? Well, I wanted to I wanted to come, yeah. um, but there's so much going on. I didn't want to commit and then have to back out at the last second because right. it's complete chaos. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, that's the that's the reason. Uh, yeah. I, I, I had to back out of something last year, and I feel awful about it. Oh my gosh, I'll never I'll never get over it. But so I wanted to avoid that. I, I tend to overcommit anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I want to say yes to everything and help as many people as I can. And uh, but I also have that issue of now I've said yes to all these things, and now there's deadlines looming, and there's all these there's family stuff and all this, and I'm. Yeah, so I need someone to uh, start managing that yeah. part of the chaos because I am notoriously horrible at saying no. So I didn't want to all of a sudden be on all these panels and then have something happen at the last second. And sure, have to not be able to come. So it's well, nice to be here. Tammy and I said right before, right when you stepped up, we have been watching you from uh -oh. afar, just cheering you on, and not that you need it, but it's uh -oh. we, we're we're so proud of you. We're so uh -oh, happy thank for you. you. Thank and, you and your family. And well, I appreciate the support from the from the very beginning. means the means the world, and that's why I love coming to these things also because it's a chance for me to say thank you to people and that's what I love doing on social media and yeah. so I love doing at book signings and at uh, book festivals and at conferences like this and it's a chance for me to, to shake hands with somebody and thank them for taking a risk on me as an author and then telling a friend so yeah. I sincerely appreciate it well thanks for spending some time with us absolutely yeah awesome. cool all right nice Oh, I know. This has been a Thriller Zone replay recorded at BoucherCon 23 in downtown San Diego. Your front row seat to the best thrillers.
The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.